if you've got a Bible, would you grab it? We'll be in Genesis chapter 3 this morning where uh, we're going to be looking at an event that theologians refer to as the fall. Um, This is the moment where everything goes wrong in human history. Uh, Before this chapter, it's all good. Um, Before this chapter, uh, everybody's happy. The sun is out. Um, Our first parents are living in a garden paradise. They're walking with God. They're naked and unashamed. There's a little R&B playing in the background. They're eating fruit. It's a great time. Everyone's having a good time in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam's even got a dog. It's just everybody's happy. It's a good time. And then we come to this chapter um, where Satan and sin entered the picture. And all of a sudden, after this chapter, um, and even in this chapter, we're going to see today the first marital fight. Uh, we're going to see the first murder next week. Um, and then as we continue in Genesis, we're going to see story after story of how humans use and abuse one another. Um, and, and ultimately, we're going to see how humans will build cities and systems and structures of power to do that more efficiently. Uh, and this is the chapter today on which it all hinges. This is the chapter that explains all of that. Um, And that is what makes Genesis 3 one of the most important chapters, um, not only in the Bible, but I would say in your life. Um, Because this is the world we live in, right? Um, Like, let's just set it up this way. How many of you have looked out at the world and wondered what happened? Right? You can just keep those hands up. Okay, how many of you have looked out at the world and gone, why is there so much evil? Why is there so much injustice? Um, How many of you have wondered, um, why are people so mean and cruel and just flat out dumb sometimes? Right? Like, has anybody wondered this? Well, that's what this chapter is here to answer for us today. And if we could have some real talk, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this one, but let's be real. It's not just out there, is it? Like, have you ever wondered, um, why do I find myself doing the things that I do? Why do I do the things that I do? Like, have you ever just had that thought? Like, why did I just, I can't believe I just did that. Uh, That's what Genesis 3 is here to address today. And look, there are a lot of ideas and philosophies and speculations that would answer these questions. What we have before us is the true story of what's gone wrong in the world. Um, And so I I think your life is going to make a lot more sense after today. Um, My hope and prayer for you has been um, that today might be uh, like a good counseling session where um, God the Holy Spirit is our great counselor, um, can use his word to maybe shed some light on and make some sense of some things in our life today. Um, and, and, And here's the good news. This chapter isn't just here to tell us what's gone wrong, though that's an important place to start. This chapter is going to tell us, yes, how did we get into this position? But it's ultimately going to tell us how can we get out? And so my prayer is that the Holy Spirit might um, give us a good counseling session today um, that might ultimately end with um, pointing us to Jesus and by his grace lifting us from our fallen state just a little bit more this morning. You ready for that? All right, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to do the whole chapter today. We'll take a a few verses at a time. We'll start. Did someone say, oh, yeah, we'll see how long this takes. I hope you packed a snack. Uh, I'm I'm kidding, I hope. We'll see. Genesis chapter 3, we'll start in verse 1, says this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Um, So I want to stop right there because the entrance of this serpent uh, has a real change in the story. 
Uh, the story of the fall, it all begins with this serpent. So let's talk about him. Um, it's clear right away that this is more than a normal snake, right? Your first clue should be that he's talking. Like, that's very odd. Yes, that is very odd. Uh, what the text says is this creature, it's more crafty than any of the animals that the Lord God had made. Something is going on with this snake. And the New Testament will confirm this for us in the last book of the Bible by saying that this serpent was actually Satan, uh, the great enemy of God and his people. So the first thing you need to know as we enter the story of the fall is that you and I have an enemy. Um, what the Bible tells us is that uh, before God made human beings to uh, partner with him in ruling on the physical realm here in the earth, he made spiritual beings to partner with him in ruling over the heavenly realms. And at some point prior to this chapter, one of those spiritual beings... Uh, decided he wanted to be God. He wanted to take God's place and not to partner with God, but to rule in place of God. Uh, and now, this did not go well for that being who goes by many names in the Bible, but we'll use the name Satan today because that's kind of the favorite one Jesus would use, and we like Jesus around here. Um, but uh, it didn't go well for Satan. He rebelled against God, and though he's a powerful spiritual being, he is not the creator. And so just like happens, anytime creation rebels against a creator, um, God doesn't go, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? God cast Satan down to the earth along with a third of the spiritual beings that joined him in his rebellion. And, and, and so what happens, and, and all of this comes prior to this chapter, the rest of the Bible will kind of fill in some of the details. If you've got questions, ask in the Q&A about it. But here's the point. When this serpent enters the garden, what we have in this moment is this war that is in heaven has now spilled down to the earth. And, and Satan, the great enemy of God, who realizes, okay, I can't defeat God, he is cast down to the earth, and he says, okay, if I can't beat him, then I'm going to grieve him, and I'm going to wreak as much havoc and harm on his people and on his world as possible. So that's verse 1. The war in heaven spills down to the earth. We've got an angry enemy who enters the garden. And, and look, I know... Um, I know we live in a secular day where even inside of the church, I don't think we have a framework for um, powerful spiritual beings that are warring against us. Um, but, but I will say this, that um, Satan, I think, loves that we don't have a category for him. And, and the thing is, um, if we don't know that we have an enemy, then our enemy can pummel us and we'll have no clue why. And so the Bible doesn't want us to be unaware of the fact that we have an enemy. And so from the very beginning, what we learn is that we have an enemy. And we learn a couple of things about him in this story that we all need to pay attention to. Number one, we're told he is crafty. Like, I want you to notice, he doesn't show up in this threatening way. He doesn't show up kind of in a red suit with horns and go, boo, I'm the devil. He, he, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, Adam and Eve, you guys look like you're having a great honeymoon. Do you want, how about we ruin everything? That's not what he does. He shows up as a serpent, which, um, you know, the first time I was reading this, or not the first time, but one of the times I was reading this, I was like, I don't know, that seems very, that seems very threatening. I don't know what's crafty about this. Because um, I'm a Bible-believing Christian, and I think snakes are evil because of this story. Um, that's not to dog on you if you have snakes. That's just to justify my fear. Um, but, but here's what you have to recognize. That's a Genesis 3 reality. Okay, um, the, the serpent, 
He is one of the animals that Adam would have named. And before all of this happened, there's no reason that Adam and his offspring should fear snakes. If anything, this is like one of the guys he named. He came up with the name snake. And so what Satan does is he um, comes in this non-threatening way as part of the animal kingdom that Adam had ruled over, had named. uh, It's not threatening. And so he slithers his way into the garden, and he comes with a question, which again, this seems so non-threatening, but you got to recognize there's two kinds of questions. Um, The first kinds of question uh, are questions that are designed uh, to illuminate the truth or clarify the truth. And these are really good questions. So if you're here today wondering, is Jesus real? Does he love me? Can he explain what's going on in my life? If you are here with real questions about your life, and you really want to know, we are so glad you're here. Uh, You're going to find this is a safe place to ask your questions about God. There's no dumb questions. This is a safe place to ask those. I say every week, please send in your questions to that link in the bulletin. And I think like one of you take me up on it. But seriously, this is a place where I really believe it's when we bring our real questions that the real God can meet us where we're really at. So questions that are designed to clarify the truth, these are awesome. We love those kinds of questions here at Fair Oaks. But then there's a second kind of question. And and the second kind of question isn't designed to clarify the truth, but to obscure the truth, to cause doubt. Let me give you an example. This is like when I'm driving and Karen says, are you sure you know where you're going? She's not trying to clarify the truth. She's not wondering, uh, do you need my help? There's an accusation in there. Like three of you have been driving as a married couple, I see. Right? Do you know where you're going? That's not to clarify the truth. There's an accusation. That's to create doubt where I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I don't know where I'm going. Can you help me? And, and that's exactly what Satan's question is designed to do. Not to equate you with Satan, hon. I, I don't mean that at all. Uh, let me just clarify that for this moment. But there's two kinds of questions. Good ones that are honest and true and want to clarify. Um, the bad questions are those that are trying to create doubt, to confuse, and to um, murky up everything. And that's what Satan's doing. He comes and he says, did God tell you you couldn't eat from any tree? Which he knows that's not what God said. But he's trying to create doubt. He's trying to get Eve focused, not on all the things that God said to enjoy, but on the one thing that he said not to. He's crafty, he's cunning, and it's effective. Look at verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, is that true? A few of you said no. Here's a fun thing. Just for time, we're going to keep moving, but go ahead and compare that to what God said in chapter 2. It's mostly true, but there's a little bit addition there, and anytime you add to what God has said with your own rules, it tends to go uh, badly, but that one's just for free. Look at it at Gospel Community this week. Ask about it in the Q&A. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's the second thing that we see about Satan. He is a liar. 
He's a liar. In fact, when Jesus talks about Satan, he says he's the father of lies. He's been lying from the very beginning. When he tells lies, he's speaking his native language. So some of you are bilingual. Uh, Karen's bilingual. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't even speak English very good. Um, and then I can read some biblical languages. Uh, I, I want to be truly bilingual. Satan, uh, he, he speaks many languages. And his native tongue, though, lying. That's according to Jesus. He's a liar, and we see it here. What he says is, God told you you're going to die, but God's wrong. You won't, you won't die if you do this. He says, God, he, he's not trying to protect you. He's holding out on you. He knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes will be open, and you will become like God. And, and here's where Satan's really the worst. That's not the most controversial thing you'll hear today, that Satan is the worst. But let me just say, here's where Satan's the worst. Um, they're already like God, right? We, we looked at this in Genesis chapter 1, that God made human beings in his image and likeness, that we are the living statues of God in this world, that God wants us to be like him. He wants us to reflect him in the world. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to be alive. But Satan shows up and he lies to her about her identity. He says, you're not really like God, but if you want to be like God, listen up. He, he shows up to her and he says, God's not out for your good. He is trying to hold you back. And, and this is the core of Satan's whole strategy, that he comes to us. He hasn't changed his strategy from the beginning. This is here so that we can know when he comes to us. This is Satan's whole strategy. It's he comes to us and he tries to convince us that God is holding us back from our true potential. And you might be thinking, oh, you know, I've never had a, a, a demon with horns show up to me. Um, this can come in many forms. He could come in the form you least expect, like one of the animals that you just tend to see every day. And you and I might be freaked out by a talking animal, but there's a lot of forms that Satan comes in today um, that I don't even think we're aware of the spiritual component that's driving it. But he is crafty and he is a liar. And so he shows up and the core of his strategy is he's trying to get Eve to believe that God is holding out on her. Um, now, uh, there's one theologian named Bruce Waltke. He was the guy that had that great line a few weeks ago about God not wanting to waste his best gift on, a, um, on an unappreciative man, that guy. Um, Bruce Waltke calls this whole strategy the hiss of the serpent. And, and I love that phrase. I would commend that to you because um, what I love about that phrase is it reminds us that when we hear that idea in our world today that we can remember where it comes from. When someone looks at the word of God and says, did God really say that? Oh, come on, that's holding you back. You, you, if you want to be really alive, you got to get out from underneath that. The hiss of the serpent, I would commend this phrase to you to remember the origins of where that idea comes from. It doesn't come from above comes from below. It comes from our enemy. And so Satan shows up in the garden and he's like, man, why won't God let you eat of that tree, Eve? Like, gosh, that just seems so restrictive to me. What a killjoy God is. You know, like, what, what does he really know anyway? Do, you know, he said you'll die, but I, I don't think you'll die. Do you think you'll die? You seem smart. You seem empowered. What do you think about this? And then he goes for the throat. He says, if you really want to be alive, if you really want to be like God, you have to get out from under God's boot and become your own God. God told you to do this, but if you want to be God-like, you've got to go out on your own and to be your own God. That's the hiss of the serpent. And that's really the essence of what the Bible calls sin. So Bruce Waltke calls this the hiss of the serpent. I think that's a helpful category. Let me give you a biblical word for this idea. 
sin. Um, at its root, sin is not just breaking of arbitrary rules. My five-year-old last, asked us last night, like, what is sin? Um, and, you know, like, I, I'm tempted to tell a five-year-old, sin is when you don't clean your room on time. Uh, but sin is not just a breaking of arbitrary rules, though that would fall um, under the larger bucket. Um, but what sin is, is it's ultimately a heart posture that says, I think I'd make a better God than you. And so rather than let you be my God and you be my king, I will be my own God and king. So you've said that the tree is not good. That's your opinion. My opinion, uh, informed by the devil, is it's good. And so uh, this is what the whole story is about. See, people want to make it about the fruit. Like, why is God getting so frustrated about them eating fruit? Like, at least it's not, you know, French fries or something grossly unhealthy for you. Uh, but this story is ultimately about, will they trust the goodness of God? Or will they fall for the hiss of the serpent and seek to redefine eat good and evil on their own terms and to um, become their own gods? And, and you, you got to remember, this is the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. He wanted to be God in place of God. He gets cast down to the earth. He knows it leads to death. And he shows up and tries to get the humans to kill themselves just like he did. He tempts them. He creates, he, he frames it almost like this will lead to life. Don't you want this? And so the question is, will they trust the goodness of God or believe in the lies of the devil? Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. Uh, let's just stop right there. Does that seem very intelligent? The omniscient, all-knowing creator of all things comes walking through the garden. And our first parents, their brilliant idea is, let's hide behind the tree. He won't see us there. Here's the point that's just for free. Sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you dumb. Um, like, I don't know if you've ever watched Dr. Phil or kind of pick whatever your daytime TV is. But when we sin, we're not in our right minds. Um, we are um, not altogether rational and coherent, and that's, that's just for free. That's just something you see in the text here. I pause, the real reason I pause is, in the midst of their sin and foolishness, God pursues them. That's going to be key to the whole story. If you hear nothing else today, hear that in the midst of our sin and foolishness, God is a God who pursues us anyway. Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I, I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said to him, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she ate the fruit of the tree, and, and then I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put 
enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And Adam said, And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Those are some of the most tragic verses in the Bible. Um, especially when you consider where we've been. Naked and unashamed, walking with God, everything is good. In this chapter, so far, there's a lot of bad news. Um, there's a lot of loss. There's a lot of death. And, and it, it all starts with this experience that I think that we've all had. Um, see if you've had this experience. Um, Eve looks at the tree and she says, I know what God says about this, but it looks good to me. I think that this will bring me life. I think this will bring me happiness. I think this will bring me um, flourishing. And so um, though she knows what God says, she feels convinced that this will make her happy in a way that God can't. Have you ever been there? See, it's so easy to look at this story and be like, dummies, if only I was there. If you and I were there, you would have done the same. I would have done the same because we've all done the same. She looks at the tree. She knows what God says, but she feels convinced that it can make her happy in a way that God cannot. And so in that moment, she takes from the tree, she eats it. And immediately, the second she does, she is filled with regret. She is filled with shame. She runs and tries to cover herself. And then her husband, who we don't even have time for that, but he was with her. Those are some of the most incriminating words on manhood in the entire Bible. That'll have to be another sermon. Both of them, I would say, thought that this would bring them life in their own unique ways. And both of them run in fear and shame and try to sew these fig leaves together to cover themselves up because immediately they're filled with regret. Have you ever been there? Where you're like, this is going to make me happy. This is going to make me happy. And then you do it and you're like, I can't believe that I did that. That's what happens in the garden. And, and look, you need to hear this. That is what sin does. That is what sin does. See, sin always promises much, but it never delivers. Sin says, if you do this, you'll be fully alive. And then what happens when you actually do it is it brings you death, just like God said it would. Now, some people look at this and they'll say, well, Adam and Eve didn't physically drop dead, so maybe Satan was right. But, but that's to miss the whole point of this story. This whole chapter, it's covered in the stench of death. And, and look, I tell you this all the time, but in the Bible, life and death, it's more than about are you breathing or not. See, death isn't just do you have breath in your lungs or not. Um, death is to miss out on true life. And so I say this to you all the time, but you can be alive and not have life. You can be physically walking around, but relationally, spiritually, emotionally be dead on the inside. 
Um, This is where I think if your conscience allows that a good zombie flick can actually help you, because that's our world today. It's we're walking around, but we are not alive on the inside. And that is the condition that Jesus came to cure for us. He says, uh, the devil, Satan, came to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that you might have life. Jesus is the anti-Satan, but now I'm getting ahead of myself here. Here is the point. Death is all over this story. And what we actually see in the story is that physical death, where our bodies cease to breathe, that is actually just, um, it is just a uh, byproduct uh, of the larger problem of death that sin brings into human history. And so what I want to do is just look at four ways um, that we see that sin brings death into the human experience in this text. Because what the New Testament tells us is this isn't just their experience, this is all of our experience. Romans 1 will use this moment to describe the condition of all humanity. So um, let's look at uh, the four ways that we see death in this text, the way that sin breaks life as it was made to be. And we'll start with this. Number one, sin breaks our relationship with God. Um, To this point in human history, uh, the humans are walking with God. Having a great relationship. God's meeting all their needs. They're enjoying great fellowship with God. Uh, it's a, like we said earlier, they're having a great time. But at the heart of that great time is God who sees all of their needs, provides. Like God presided over their wedding. He is there. He is provider. He is their friend. He is their creator. He is their king. They have this perfect relationship with God where they walk in the garden in the cool of the day together. They've got this great intimate relationship with the Lord. But now from the moment that sin enters the world, they don't walk with God in joy and freedom. They run from God in fear and shame. Sin has broken their relationship with their creator. And it's done the same to all of us. Now, um, we live in a secular day that almost celebrates this idea. Um, I was listening to uh, an interview with the uh, former head of Google, and I, I, I don't know his faith position or whatever, but he said something interesting in the interview where he said, um, you know, 400 years ago, humanity made this great movement, this great achievement away from the age of faith where kind of God was at the center of life to the age of reason where we can kind of do some things on our own. And I don't know entirely what he meant by that, but here's what I was thinking about. Um, that kind of captures the essence of our day that would almost look at this and say, like, I have a lot of friends that would, they would say, sin breaks my relationship with God. Oh, I'm so bummed about that. Good, I didn't want a relationship with God anyway. This is the day and age in which we live. Now, you're good church folk here. You wouldn't say that, but I'm telling you, this is the day and age in which we live. People don't walk around going, how's my relationship with God? We, we live in a post-Christian era. So let me just prepare you. Some people would actually celebrate this truth. But what we see in this text, and here's how we need to know to engage our world. What we see in this text is that you and I were made for a relationship with God where we walk with him, where we talk with him, where we fellowship with him, where we enjoy his love, where we enjoy his life. And when that relationship with God is not working right, nothing in life works right. And and that leads us to number So sin breaks our relationship with our creator. They're running. They're hiding from the Lord. And because of that, number two, sin breaks our relationship with one another. Um, When God finally gets them to come out of the bushes, he says to Adam, hey, bro, what happened? Did you eat from that tree I told you not to eat of? Like the one thing? Um, 
And Adam's response is less than ideal. Adam says, uh, okay, I did, but just hear me out. Let me explain. I ate from that tree, but it's not my fault. It's the woman you gave me. Now, there's layers to this we don't have time for today because ultimately I think he's blaming God there. Um, But let's just talk about the human aspect of this. He says, it's not my fault. I married crazy. So I wanted to worship you. I wanted to love you. And then this wife you gave me, she brought me this apple pie that she baked with the devil and I didn't know what was in it and I just ate of it. Here's what he's doing. He's blame shifting. He's blaming his wife and scripture does not record for us the look on Eve's face because it doesn't need to. We all know the look that she gave him. Like, really, Adam? You didn't seem to complain when I brought it to you. Like, this is the first marriage fight. God says, Adam, what have you done? And he said, oh, I did it, but it's not really my fault. It's actually my wife's fault. I married crazy. If it were just me, do you remember when it was just me and we were naming all the animals and it was awesome? Who's the common denominator here? And see, we laugh at that, but I think we've been doing the same ever since. Like, I'll tell you this. Um, Every single marriage issue I have ever counseled or experienced myself personally, because I am married, and some of my best examples come from there. Every single marriage issue I've ever experienced, either in counseling or for myself, has this same root to it. One or both spouses, their heart is not freed up in the love of God. They're not doing well with the Lord. And so because they're not receiving from God what they're meant to receive from God, they begin to ask one another to be their functional God. Ever been there? Um, and, and you could do this with any relationship. This could be with your kids. This could be with your roommates. This could be with your coworkers. I'm just going to talk marriage because that's within the text. But this is applicable across the board. So if you're single, don't tune out and be like, those people got issues, man. Um, we ask people to be our functional gods for us. And... So we put an impossible pressure on people because we're not receiving from God what we're meant to receive. So we put an impossible weight on finite humans to fill the infinite space in our hearts. And when they cannot do that, because here is the secret. I tried to let you in on this last week, but if you were married, you married a sinner. Um, You married a finite being just like you. They're just as human. They're just as flawed as you are. And so what inevitably happens is when we look to a spouse or to a friend or, again, apply this across the board. When we look to another human to be our functional God for us, it might work for a day. It might work for a month. It might work for a couple of years. But eventually the fact that they are human and just as finite and flawed as we are will come to the surface. And when it does, we tend to turn on them. We tend to turn on them and be like, man, my life wouldn't be so hard right now if you were better. What's going on here? Like, man, I, I, I know I'm struggling with the Lord, but the reason I'm struggling with the Lord is you. I know I'm struggling at work, but the reason I'm struggling at work is you. And we blame shift and we blame one another. And, and, and let, let me say this. I don't even think we just do this at the personal level. I think we can almost even do this on a corporate level where... Um, we can look, uh, like, I would say this way, this is where you get injustice in the world, is when we take a group of people, no longer an individual, and blame them for our sin. So we say, these people, that's the reason the world is messed up right now. Let's treat them as less than. Let's be down on them. Let's put all of our attention on blasting them for whatever we can create that's wrong in them so we don't honestly have to look at us. 
And so this is where you get injustice. This is where war comes from. What war is is just military power behind that ambition. See, when our relationship with God is right, we can't relate to one another rightly. Because something at the center of us is gone. And so we look to other humans to be that for us. And it doesn't work. And when they fail, we blast them for it. And so sin not only breaks our relationship with our creator, it has broken our relationship with other humans. But then number three, it's, it's not just other humans. Sin breaks our relationship with ourself. Now I know that one sounds kind of weird, but hear me out on this. Um, what we saw in the creation story on page one, uh, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, is that when humans are made, we are declared very good by God. We are naked and unashamed. We are fully seen and there's nothing to be afraid of. That is the state until the serpent enters the garden and our first parents decide to team up with him against God and and sin enters the world. Um, Before Genesis 3, humans are naked and unashamed. After sin enters the world, immediately they see themselves as they are and they feel shame. They run from one another, they hide in the bushes, and they take fig leaves to try to cover themselves up. Um, This is not just a broken relationship with the Lord. This is not just a broken relationship with one another. This is a broken relationship with themselves. Where they look at themselves and go, I can't believe I did that. If you've ever felt down on yourself, if you've ever had negative self-talk and been like, what's wrong with me? What you need to hear from this story is you were not created to feel that way. God made you to be very good. Now, some people will say, see, exactly, religion is the problem. If we could just destigmatize sin, and instead of saying sin, just say, uh, you know, self-esteem. Or instead of say sin, just say, I I think differently than you. If we could just do away with the category of God and sin, then we'll feel better about ourselves. But, But here's the thing. You need to hear, you weren't created to feel shame. You weren't created to feel down on yourself. But you also need to hear in this text, that condition of humanity being innocent and good was lost at the fall. So God didn't create us to feel that way, but that feeling is real. And, and we can't just, you know, people want to destigmatize it by changing the language, by saying stuff is fine. But that doesn't deal with the, the fact that what God says is humans are very good in chapter 1 according uh, to God. In chapter 3, what he says is humans are very broken now. What he says is uh, your, your fundamental nature has been distorted by sin. He says in verse 16, he says, where you once had this desire to partner together. And to work together to rule the world on my behalf. Now, Eve, you're going to have this inordinate desire for your husband. It's going to be unhealthy. It's going to be unhelpful. And your husband, he is going to have this distorted desire within himself to take the role of responsibility he's been given, to lord it over you, and to use and to abuse you. What God is saying is humanity has been broken, that our own nature, our own self, uh, page one, humans are created very good. Page uh, three, if that's where Genesis three is for you, is human nature is fractured by sin. Where once we are exactly as God intended, on the other side of the fall, we are a marred vision of what God made us to be. 
Now, I want to be really careful um, because Satan's going to try to use these words to try to condemn you. Um, The Bible is clear. The image of God is never lost in humanity. It is simply marred. And again, to jump to the end of the sermon, um, God's response to our um, evil and sin is not to go, yuck, I'm done with you. His response is to redeem us. So even though there is some stuff in you that is legitimately shady, God loves you and redeems you. So don't you let Satan say, see, you're not good enough. Because that's the whole point of the gospel. But I'm getting ahead of of myself yet again. Um, The point is this, that human nature has been distorted by sin. And and according to the New Testament, it's, it's, it's all of us. That when Adam and Eve fell, when our first parents fell, that that sin just passes down through the gene pool, the bloodline, whatever the science of it. The Bible's not concerned with the science. It's considered with the spirituality of it. That all humans are born, we, we saw this in the book of Ephesians, dead in our sins and trespasses. And, and I, I know that's not a popular idea. We look at, there's a philosopher named John Locke in the 17th century who popularized this idea. No, 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 the Bible's wrong. All humans are born as a blank slate. And I just think John Locke probably wasn't around a lot of kids, frankly. Uh, Because I'll tell you this, I love my little girls. They are beautiful image bearers of the Lord. They're praying to Jesus. It is the coolest thing ever. But I'll tell you this, I didn't have to teach them how to lie. I did have to teach them how to say please. Um, Those kids never saw me bite or hit Karen to win an argument. Where does this stuff come from? See, Genesis 3 is going to explain it this way, that sin has distorted our nature, that something is broken in us from the second our first parents sin that that's passed down and that there are desires in us that are broken that are going to lead to death that we might have a good desire for justice like hey that's not your toy you shouldn't take it but then a good desire is like undermined by some shady desires that said so I'm going to punch you to take it back see something is broken in us here is the point in all of this our Sin has broken our relationship with ourselves. And that means that our our problem isn't just outside of us that we're going to receive temptation from Satan, but now it's coming from inside of us that we will have desires that if followed will hurt people even though we think we're trying to help them. We sin sucks. Satan's the worst. This is not how God made it to be, but this is a result that our desires have been twisted, our heart has been distorted, and so now our relationship with ourself is broken. And if that's theoretical to you, uh, let me just say it this way. Here's where you felt that in your life this week. Um, where I, I don't know if you're a Christian or not, um, but I think we all have an idea of here's a good thing that I should do. Uh, maybe if you were here last week, if you're married, you thought here's something I want to do in my marriage this week. And so you can know, here's a good thing I want to do. Have you ever, ever had the experience of here's what I know I want to do, and then you find yourself doing something else anyway? And you're like, what is wrong with me? Why do I keep doing this? See, the Bible's going to explain that, that you're broken. God didn't make you that way, but sin has done something to you that even when you, by grace, want to follow Jesus along this way, you have these desires in you that are going to pull you in another direction. And so I I think Romans 7 is a chapter of the Bible that helpfully explains this. He talks about this tension. He says, I want to follow the Lord, but I keep finding myself doing all this stuff. And what he says at the end of this chapter is, who will save me from this body of sin and death? That's the point. You were not created this way. 
It is sin and the effect of sin called death in your body that makes it so you have a hard time doing the things that you want to do because you have conflicting desires. You've not been totally lost as an image bearer. Each and every one of you, every person you'll meet is infinitely valuable to God, even our, our broken and marred state. But we are fooling ourselves if we pretend we're not broken and marred. Again, that doesn't change our value to the Lord. He will, like the whole reason Jesus came was to redeem broken and marred sinners. So you don't get to say that means that we're harsh with people. What it does mean is we should probably be realistic with other people and even with ourselves. Some of you need to hear that today. You need to be realistic with yourself. That if you are in Christ, you are a sinner in progress. Selah. All right. So, how are we doing? Let me just check in. We've got one more. Are, are we doing okay? Are you with me? I know this is heavy. Okay. Uh, number four, sin breaks our relationship with the created order. So, um, so our relationship with God's broken. Uh, we're fighting with one another. Our, we're fighting our own desires inside of us. We're fighting an enemy on the outside. And then the earth is trying to kill us. Um, that's the final thing we see in our text. God says uh, to Adam, hey, because of this sin, now the earth is going to produce thorns and thistles. And Adam says, what's that? And he says, you'll find out. Get a good pair of gloves, get some boots. You need to build some tools to till the land because this thing's about to get a whole lot more difficult. And, and so let me just say this for the sake of time. Um, what the Bible tells us uh, here and in subsequent chapters is the reason that hurricanes rage and destroy and fires burn and kill us. Like the reason that all, the world was not created that way. God made oceans to surf on and to look at and to see his majesty and power. He made fire to keep us warm. And when sin fractures the cosmos, it fractures everything. And so now the waves that were made to be a source of joy and adventure for us become a source of terror and fear like the reason that the world can kill us the reason that like when you go camping it's like well this spider wants to get me and that snake has turned against me and why are the bears so mad at me the reason that all of this is the case is that the world has been fractured by sin and so and, and again this is a question we're asking today like man why is the world this way um, the bible would say sin now, it doesn't mean that we're cavalier to it and we're like, let it burn. Like, actually, we should be a redemptive people, but we should understand that the world was not created to be hostile to human life, that that is a result of sin, that sin brought death even into our relationship with the created order. And so are you seeing why they call this chapter the fall? Genesis 1 and 2, naked and unashamed, eating fruit, walking with God, all the animals are happy. They're naming them instead of running from them. They're having a grand old time. They're walking with God in the garden. Genesis 3, they meet Satan. They have a little meal with Satan apart from God. And everything breaks. Now, relationship with God doesn't work. Relationship with one another doesn't work. We look down upon ourselves. We war against ourselves. And finally, the planet's trying to kill us. Um, is there anything in your life that that does not explain from this past week? Anything. See, I, I would say this. I believe that's the point. We're meant to look at Genesis 3 and see every ounce of brokenness you've ever experienced in your life. Every hurt, every disappointment, every bit of sadness you've ever had, not only in your life, but that you've ever read about, it can all be traced back to this moment. That sin brings death into the human experience, and sin is at the root of all the pain and all of the injustice and all of the evil and all of the grief that we experience in our lives. 
And it's important to recognize that because if you don't, if you don't get to the root, you just treat the symptom. And people will say things like, oh, the reason that you're down on yourself is you don't have enough self-esteem. And so you need to think higher of yourself. You need to trust yourself more, not realizing that thinking too highly of ourselves is what got us into this situation in the first place. Much of that movement, there's a, a good desire to want to help people, but if you only treat the symptoms and don't treat the root, you ain't helping anybody. And so the Bible wants to get to the root and to say, your problem is not fundamental. You, you and I, we have lots of problems. And it may be true that you are too down on yourself. I don't want to remove that category entirely. What I'm saying is our root problem is not that we don't think enough of ourselves. Our root problem is not that we married the wrong person. Our root problem is not that the wrong political party or leader is in charge or that the wrong group of people have the say over your life right now. Our problem is fundamentally this, that we are sinners by nature and choice. We have been um, marred by sin and we have of our own will gladly continued to follow in the pattern of our first parents. That for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just Adam and Eve, you and me. And what the Bible says is that is our fundamental problem, that the wages of sin is death. And the reason that we have all this pain in life, it is not because God is not good. You know, people say, why does a good God let bad things happen? Because he gives us free will and allows us to make real decisions. And we are the ones that bring death into the universe. It's not a complicated question. Why does God allow bad things to happen? That's a complicated question. Um, God brings good from evil is kind of the big idea of Genesis. That'll be another sermon asking the Q&A. I got to keep moving though. If we can get to the root of the problem, we have a shot at actually being free in a way that lasts. And, and, and that's what makes this chapter, um, and particularly God's posture throughout this chapter, such good news. Um, look at the end of the chapter. L look at how this ends, because once we get to the root of it, once we get to the root of it, we're ready to see what God has done to fix it. So, so look at verse 20 with me. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore... The Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, you might look at that and say, what in the world is encouraging about that? God kicks our first parents out of the Garden of Eden, and Eden floats away into heaven, never to be seen again until the final book of the Bible when Jesus returns to make all things new. What is encouraging about that? And here's what I would submit to you. What's encouraging is that God saw humanity in our broken condition, in our sinful state. And he says, I don't want you to live that way forever. I don't want you to be cut off from relationship with me. I don't want you warring with one another. I don't want you warring with yourself and down on yourself and doing destructive things. And I don't want you dying because of the world and how broken it is. God 
is grieved by these things. He does not want the humans to live forever in our sinful and broken state. And so what he says is, I'd rather let you die so I can resurrect you and start over. So he casts us away from the garden, not to eat from the tree of life, that we might not live forever in a death-filled state, not because he hates us, but because he loves us. And he is a life giver, he is a life bringer, and he cannot stand to see us living in sin and death. And so he casts the humans away. Bruce Waltke, this theologian I'm really beginning to like, he says, death is both um, boom and bust. He says it's... um, you know, it's bust in that your, your life is, in this world is over, but it's boom because it frees you from the curse of death. And, and here's the thing, only the Christian worldview offers you that because apart from what we see in Genesis 3, death would be the end, but what we see in Genesis 3 is death is not the end, that God sends the humans out with the redemptive lens, and that, that gets at the heart that's at the very center of this entire chapter. I want to read for you uh, one more time if you'll look with me at verse 14. Verse 14 is, uh, theologians call this the Proto-Evangelion. That's nerd talk. It's actually Greek for uh, the first gospel. This is the first time that the good news that we celebrate every single Sunday was ever proclaimed in all of creation and it comes on the lips of God in the face of human rebellion. I want you to think about that. Look at verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What he's saying is, Satan, you may have won the battle today, but you will not win the war. You may have caused great death to come into my world, but I'm not going to let death have the last word. I'm going to graciously allow life to continue. And though it will be painful, there's going to be pain in childbirth, though it will be messy, though, um, man, humans are going to war against one another, the creation is going to war against them, I will be at work in the mess. And what he says in verse 15 is at the fullness of time, I'm going to send a rescuer through the line of the woman who will come and crush your head. And you will cause him grief. You will bite at his heel, but he will ultimately crush your head and undo everything that you have broken in this moment. And from Genesis 3 onward, the entire Bible, the entire history of humanity is looking for the one who will come and crush the serpent and restore what has been lost in the fall. And so every mighty person you get, this is all throughout, you read your Old Testament. Hey, here's a good judge. Here's a good prophet. Here's a good king. Is this one the guy? And for thousands of thousands of years, you've got good guys, good potential, and it turns out, nope, nope, they are broken by sin. They are unable to ultimately be the one who would stand up to Satan and redeem what has been lost in the fall. And this goes on for two-thirds of your Bible until a child is born to a virgin. Until God himself puts on human flesh and enters into human history, not tainted by the sin of Adam, but fully human like us in every respect. And he steps into human history. And I don't know if you recall this, but in the Gospel of Mark, we saw that Jesus began his public ministry in the wilderness, just like where Adam and Eve were cast out of Eden. 
And in the wilderness, he spends 40 days praying, fasting, talking to the Father and the Spirit, communing with the other members of the Godhead. And guess who shows up? Satan. And he shows up with the same old strategy because he's just the worst. Satan sees the Son of God coming to redeem his image bearers that he loves. And so Satan comes with his same old tricks. And it worked before. Why not again? So Satan comes and said, here's some food that God said not to eat. Why don't you eat it? Jesus, instead of quoting scripture inaccurately, quotes it accurately and fights the devil back. And, and, and then he, he gets to the throat. He gives him the hits of the serpent. He's like, well, hey, the father doesn't know what's best for your ministry. Why don't you jump off this cliff and allow everyone to see that you are God? I mean, you are God, right? This is what Satan does. He deals in half-truths, but his questions are intended to deceive and to manipulate, and Jesus ain't falling for it. He said, if that's what the father wanted for my glorification, then yeah, I do that. But you know what we're talking right now? That's not what he's saying. So get behind me, Satan. And Jesus succeeds where we have all failed. And so Satan, realizing that he can't convince Jesus to kill himself, he comes up with one final plan. Satan goes to one of Jesus' followers who is a frail, broken human like us, and he deceives him just like our first parents and says, you know what, you could get rich if you just turn in Jesus. He's just a man, right? And so Jesus deceives Satan. The Bible tells us he actually possesses him just like the serpent. He comes in to uh, uh, Judas Iscariot and he betrays Jesus. He hands him over to the Romans and Satan thinks, I've got him just like Adam and Eve. I've got the next one. I've got Jesus right where I want him. And on the cross where Satan thinks he's going to win his greatest victory, what Jesus does, why does a good God let evil thing happen? So he can turn evil on its head and bring about good. And on the moment where Satan thinks God's in the flesh, God's vulnerable, I'm finally going to kill him. I'm finally going to get to be king. Jesus Christ dies in our place for our sin, for everything that would cause us death. He takes the death that we deserve because of our sin onto himself. He takes it to the grave and he cries out, it is finished. So death does not get the last word over humanity anymore. And he rises again and says, for whoever trusts in me, new life and resurrection is on the run. And death is fleeing. New life and resurrection is on the march. And just like God came after our first parents, it's okay to clap in church. Just like God came after our first parents in the garden and said, where are you? Jesus comes to you and me this morning and says, where are you? If you're a Christian and you believe this gospel, where do you need to hear it afresh? If you've not trusted in Jesus, his call to you this morning is, would you repent of your sin? Would you let me take on the death you deserve so that I could bring you new life? And he comes to us calling us to repent of our sin, to find new life in his name, to find our relationship with God restored, to find a new power to redeem our relationships with one another, to receive a new heart that even as we have sin in our bodies, we get a new heart and that sin in our bodies will one day go away. And to be able to actually join Jesus in what he is doing to push back Satan's sin and death in this world and to bring about the newness of life. And so let me say this just as we close and land the plane. Wherever you feel that this sermon explains some brokenness in your life, the answer is not to run from God and try to cover yourself in fig leaves like our first parents did. To try to cover yourself and I'll do more, I'll try harder, I want to be better. 
The call of this text is not to try to fix yourself because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has come to take away your death. He has come to give you new life. And so the call of this text isn't to run from God and try to clean yourself up. It's to come to him wherever you feel busted this morning and receive afresh his grace and mercy to help in your moment of greatest need right now. Apart from Jesus, there is no hope. It is just death in our relationships and death in our world. But when we rest in the finished work of Jesus, we receive a new heart and a new power to bring life to these places that once are marked by brokenness and death. Father, I thank you that you did not give up on us. I thank you that in the midst of our rebellion and sin and brokenness and foolishness and folly, you don't look at us with disgust. You look at us with love and grace and kindness and you move toward us. I thank you that in the fullness of time, you sent your son. That Satan doesn't get the last word over us. Our sin doesn't get the last word over us. Not even death itself gets the last word over us. That you get the last word over us. And so, um, Father, I pray right now that you would... um, that you would send your Holy Spirit to push back the schemes of Satan and his followers that would want to um, condemn us because of these things? Would you help us to believe the gospel that for those who've trusted in Christ, there's no condemnation for us. There's no death. What can separate us from you? Nothing in all of creation because Jesus has brought us back to you. And so I pray that you would um, push back the lies of the enemy this morning that would try to keep us from running to you and receiving your help and mercy right where we need it this morning. Would you get our eyes onto Jesus, help us to believe the gospel and walk in the freedom that you sent your son to purchase for us. Thank you for being a redeeming God. Would you preserve us until the day when Jesus returns to make all things new? We love you and trust you in your beautiful name we ask. Amen.